in race and social control race and social control in the states uh, chapter four of disciplining the poor sanford schramm and his co-authors joe sauce and richard fording present the same era as hinton's history and make a similar argument but from a different angle I should say uh, Sanford Schramm teaches at Hunter in the political science department, and if you get a chance to take a class with him, you absolutely should. Um, But in this book, the authors examine the changes in poverty governance and track how changes in poverty governance became more punitive and more limited while carceral infrastructure was invested in and expanded from the 1960s to the 1990s. Traditionally, poverty governance was exclusively the province of state and local government and private actors. Historically, British poor laws distinguished between community members and outsiders in formal ways and distinguished between deserving and undeserving poor in informal ways through how discretion was used. Those divisions were replicated in early American, well, wasn't really explicit poverty governance, but what went for poverty governance in uh, the early American state. The authors talk about the principle of less eligibility. Uh, This principle means that welfare programs should offer less money than low-paying jobs in order to encourage or force people into the labor market rather than relying on government benefits. This principle was codified in England in the mid-18th century when wage labor became the predominant form of employment or means of achieving subsistence living. And you should remember Ellen Wood's discussion of the development of capitalism in England and the importance of wage labor and market economies in shaping population management. The local poverty governance in the states, as we've discussed earlier, was often administered through political parties or by private actors. That began to change during the progressive era when state bureaucracies created formal welfare provisions, but it was the New Deal that fundamentally reshaped poverty governance in America. But as we have also discussed, in the New Deal, uh, as the authors say, national policy mostly served to structure, subsidize, and supplement state and local efforts. That is, when it came to, well, where some rights and programs were administered federally and were characterized as universal rights, others, specifically welfare, or what we would call welfare, was administered locally and were entirely discretionary. The authors argue that decentralized poverty governance is first a result of welfare functioning to regulate the labor market, that's the principle of less eligibility, and second, a result of electoral pressure regarding morality politics. So this is, the authors are saying that support of people considered to be the undeserving poor is politically unpopular and thus likely to face electoral consequences. And uh, it's better for local political actors who can more accurately reflect local nuances in deserving versus undeserving characteristics who should therefore administer these policies. Or local political actors simply get stuck dealing with the issue. And to see a really incredibly powerful 
um, uh, mini series about that exact thing happening, you should watch the mini series Show Me a Hero, which is uh, depicts a Yonkers mayor in the 1980s who um, essentially integrates housing and gets such profound political pressure for doing so that he commits suicide. So uh, depressing miniseries, but a very, very well done and powerful one. So, um, so the authors are saying that number one, this decentralized poverty governance, the fact that even after the New Deal, uh, poverty governance was administered by states and local governments is a result of one, local um, states being better able to know how to regulate their local labor markets. So it's this application of the principle of less eligibility. And number two, the idea that um, funding the quote unquote undeserving poor is politically unpopular. The New Deal also had very explicit racial and gender dynamics um, in the second place, because labor protections, those federal universal rights, were centered around a family wage with a more or less explicit goal of keeping women out of the workforce. And this came both from sort of uh, more reactionary, well, it came really from more reactionary elements within the labor movement and without outside of the labor movement, but um, there were a couple different strategies that labor unions took in what was genuinely uh, decades and decades and decades long fights to get any protections for workers, whether that's maximum hour laws, minimum hour laws, workplace safety standards, etc. cetera. Um, when it came to maximum hour and minimum wage laws, there was a strategy called a maternalist strategy. And this was the idea that union workers should be paid a family wage, that union male workers should be paid a family wage so that they could support their families versus a sort of more radical, um, what more radical unions fought for like a living wage, right? Where any worker could support themselves. This maternalist strategy uh, essentially focuses on the need to protect women from dangerous work conditions and is really well articulated in two Supreme Court cases. The first is Lochner versus New York, which is a very famous, very important case in 1905. In Lochner versus New York, um, New York State had passed a maximum hour law for bake shops, for bakeries, and the um, Supreme Court overturned that maximum hour law, essentially saying that bakeries aren't really dangerous places to work, and so workers don't need special protections, that employers and employees enter into an equal contract and this is this contract is part of their 14th Amendment due process rights. I'm not kidding. The Supreme Court actually said that um, the contract between employees and employers is a 14th Amendment due process right. And that um, states cannot exercise their police power to interfere in that right. 
So it's a very famous case for being a real sort of activist decision, not very well-grounded in legal reasoning um, and very emblematic of how the Supreme Court limited uh, even when states or the federal government wanted to extend labor protections, the Supreme Court stood in the way. So that's Lochner versus New York. Three years later in Mueller versus Oregon, an exact same case comes up to the court. There is a maximum hour law in Oregon, but this law targets laundry workers, which at the time were primarily white women. And the court upholds the law saying explicitly that women need to be protected, that historically they, they had always been protected, whether by husbands or by you know their communities, um, and that one of the reasons they need to be protected from working in harsh or unsafe conditions is because they are the mother of the race. And that is a literal quote from the decision, Mueller versus Oregon. And um, and so that's an example of the sort of maternalist strategy that pushed for uh, things like a family wage instead of a living wage, which is what gets reflected in New Deal policy. So that's one way in which the New Deal uh, is trying to shape gender relationships in society. Another way is, of course, by exempting domestic workers from labor protections. Uh, Domestic workers and agricultural workers were exempted from labor protections of the New Deal, and these were jobs that were primarily held by women and uh, women of color and and the agricultural field. in the 1930s and 40s, really black men and women and Hispanic or Mexican men and women. Uh, And so the New Deal also is very explicitly shaped not only to reinforce certain gender relationships, but also to reinforce certain racial relationships. The authors say that the New Deal deny labor protections to people of color to accommodate racial exploitation in the South. So what's really important background for this is that the era after the Civil War, the Reconstruction era, right, there were, the federal government was very heavily involved in state Southern states in what state laws could be passed or couldn't be passed. And uh, the Republican Party was very active in doing that, right? The radical Republicans are the people who had called for the Reconstruction Amendments. They're the ones who had called for a lot of Reconstruction policy. Their relative power in the Republican Party begins to wane as there's intense pushback from Southern states. There's some pushback from... Uh, kind of white people in the North that are like, why are we punishing? You know, we should be about healing and reconciliation. But mostly they were limited by the Supreme Court, which consistently in the Reconstruction era limited the effect of Reconstruction amendments, limited uh, or overturned federal laws meant to, um, for example, punish the Ku Klux Klan, which had started, or to prohibit discrimination, etc. One of the 
So Reconstruction formally ends in the late 1890s. And one of the reasons it ends is because a Republican and a Democratic presidential candidate tie. Uh, they tie for you know presidential race. And the Democrats say, we'll give you this election if you abandon Reconstruction. And the Republicans are like, fine, we'll go ahead and do that. So they um, abandon Reconstruction. And one of the immediate impacts of this is that Black people lose the right to vote. Black men lose the right to vote. Now, during Reconstruction, Black men had been very active in political parties, and, you know, before as well. Um, but really during Reconstruction, very active in political parties were in elected office. In fact, there were more Black men in elected office during the Reconstruction period than there have ever been since. Um, when they lost that right to vote, what happened is that the House of Representatives gained more seats for Southern states. Now, why did they gain more seats for Southern states? This is because the, the original three-fifths clause of the Constitution says that, right, slaves would count as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of apportionment for the House of Representatives. So Southern states got fewer seats because people who were enslaved weren't counted as a full person. During the era of Reconstruction, uh, if a Southern state was interfering in Black people, Black men's right to vote, or, um, you know, there were certain rules that continued to limit the number of seats they had in the House if essentially they weren't using fair voting policy. The end of Reconstruction changes that. So Southern representation in the South, A, becomes larger than it had been pre-Civil War, and B, becomes entirely dominated by Democratic politicians. Okay, so you have the Southern Democratic bloc that over the next 40, 50, 60 years becomes more progressive on uh, labor issues on a variety of issues, but retains its very explicit racial, well, racism. Um, and we can talk more about that during class discussion if it's a little unclear. But one of the reasons the New Deal denied labor protections to agricultural workers who are predominantly people of color, one of the reasons for that is because of the disproportionate representation of Southern Democratic politicians in the House of Representatives. But anyway, getting back to the book. During and past the New Deal, state strategies based off of the principle of less eligibility made aid both difficult to get and pretty cheap so that, again, people are being forced into the labor market. Rules were put in place like a suitable home provision. So if uh, welfare workers went to your home and it was too messy or no man in the house rules. So if you had a man staying with you and you weren't married and midnight raids where literally, literally welfare workers would like come into people's houses, typically single mothers houses in the middle of the night to, you know, make sure there was no man to make sure that the home was uh, clean enough. Those were very common and were used to kick people off of welfare. Racial discrimination was not codified, but it was 
very rampant. And this is a large part of what was being protested in the uprisings in the 1960s. So Hinton starts off her, her history talking about all of this social unrest. One of the reasons for that social unrest is because uh, state welfare policies were so limited and so regressive. Um, you know, they existed, whereas before the New Deal, they hadn't existed, um, but they were punitive and limited. And so movements such as the one led by the National Welfare Rights Organization, which you should definitely look up if you haven't heard of before, were successful in their campaign to expand welfare roles. So more people were eligible for welfare. Punitive policies like suitable home provisions, no man in the house, were ended. And legal battles in the 1970s gave welfare recipients due process rights, which is an incredibly important win because it means that your denial of welfare benefits could no longer be solely discretionary that you were entitled to a hearing if you were denied and you were entitled to a reasonable explanation of why you were denied. So it um, gave people rights to assert against uh, particularly racist or you know other kinds of um, discretionary limits on the program. So um, welfare roles basically begin to expand dramatically after these successful battles <clears throat> in the 1970s. Also in the 1970s, poverty governance programs that serve the quote-unquote deserving poor become more centralized, more federal, and stronger, increase their funding. So these are programs like SSI for elderly people, SSDI for disabled people, and unemployment insurance for people who were recently uh, employed and who are unemployed but otherwise like reliable workers. Um, those programs became more associated with federal administration, they became stronger, they became better funded, they became more like universal, like the labor protections of the original New Deal. Poverty governance that served the undeserving poor, so for example, people who are not disabled or adults with less stable work histories, um, became increasingly decentralized and underfunded. So on the one hand, you have welfare roles that are increasing because people are being educated about their rights and programs are expanding eligibility. But on the other hand, programs are being underfunded, kept local and discretionary, even as the more outrageous rules were overturned. The authors look explicitly at the various sorts of state discretionary policies and the discrepancies of state discretion. Uh, and they find that the probability of benefits decreasing increased when the population of black people increased. So the more black people are in a particular city or state, the less um, funding welfare programs are going to get. Um, and this is a very common trend in a lot of sort of uh, state programs. This era is also when the shift towards expanding carceral infrastructure starts, which is that's where Hinton's history goes. Uh, mass incarceration begins in the 70s and 80s through policies such as an increasing number of crimes, right? So more things are made illegal. 
including, by the way, welfare fraud. So whether intentional or not, when, you know, in the prior to the 1980s, if you were receiving too much welfare, you um, either had to pay some of it back or you would get kicked off of the rolls. Under Reagan, receiving too much welfare became a crime that you could be imprisoned for. Obviously, that's a huge distinction and does a lot, I think, to reflect the shift of the nature of police power. Um, So you have the number of crimes increasing. You have the fact that uh, the length of sentencing increased. The sentences were longer. Probation was used less. So, you know, in the 1960s, you might get a 20-year sentence and be expected to only serve five of it on probation. Probation is granted less and less often in the 80s and 90s, and today is, you know, really, really rarely granted. What is expanded is parole supervision. So parole supervision means that, um, you know, you're not incarcerated, but your rights to move about freely are much more restricted. And violations of parole are responsible for a significant number of people going back to jails and prisons. Um, So that also happens during the 70s and 80s. And the state budget shifts to carceral administrative agencies like police, prisons, and parole. And that budget shift um, encroaches, the authors say, it encroaches on state welfare spending more than other areas such as education. So you literally have states saying, we're going to take money from welfare, which is called at the time AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. So we're going to take money from the AFDC program and put it to police, put it to prisons, put it to parole. Um, The authors know, they sort of characterize that the principle of less eligibility was disrupted in the 1960s from the left and then disrupted in the 1990s from the right, when work and marriage were once again put forward as the, quote, foundations to a successful society. The Reagan era truly shifted American politics, notably his takedown of the Airplane Workers Union, um, which precipitated a countrywide dramatic drop in union membership and a correlated dramatic reduction in wages. Like it is like almost one to one correlation. Uh, A decline in union membership is a decline in real wages. Um, And the entire system of poverty governance was put under attack, culminating in Clinton's end of welfare with the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which just is the worst name for legislation ever. So Clinton rightfully gets a lot of flack for this P-R-W-O-R-A. But it is important to note that he had a Republican Congress and that Congress introduced like two or three other much more punitive versions of this package of legislation before Clinton signed the one he did, at least in part to avoid a veto override. So um, not trying to, you know, say he's not to blame, but he the, that is one of the reasons he signed the law. Um, And the reason why, so what this law did is it ended welfare. 
It ended the AFDC program and it began TANF or Temporary Aid for Needy Families. So even in the name change, right? TANF, Temporary Aid for Needy Families, is time limited. I think you're allowed about three years maximum uh, to receive benefits. And while you're on it, you have to pers- participate in work programs, which is was not a policy under the old AFDC. TANF is also funded through block grants, which means that AFDC was funded through matching funds. So when states funded the program, they'd get money from the federal government. TANF is the states get, you know, you know, $500,000, whatever it is, but it's a set amount of money that they can use any way they want, subject to federal requirements. And one of the reasons that the authors note that this is not just a return to the pre-New Deal system is because of those federal requirements. So um, states were prohibited from offering TANF to non-citizen immigrants, people convicted of a drug offense, teen mothers who didn't live with their parents, uh, unwed mothers under the age of 18 could be denied. I mean, like really regressive rules. And states were also encouraged to limit the TANF programs. And literally, they were encouraged to shorten the TANF time limit. So um, if you only allowed people to stay on for two years instead of three, right, like that would be a good thing. So this is a devolution of the policy poverty governance back to the states, but it is not a return to a pre-1960s era. Instead, it is a new system in which the federal government intruded on state police powers to limit state discretion in welfare spending and to induce state compliance with investing in carceral infrastructure. So, you know, you'd be rewarded for spending money on police departments and getting them military weapons and building new prisons, and you would be punished for expanding welfare programs. And um, so I, I think Disciplining the Poor does a really good job of pairing with Elizabeth Hinton's history to offer um, a broad overview of how state police power, federal, what, you know, effectively what is federal police power, um, shifted from poverty governance to carceral, a carceral state, and how that manifested itself in part by reducing welfare programs and increasing carceral programs, but it also expressed itself in welfare programs being more punitive, um, more, uh, you know, time limited, less universal, less, you don't have a right to it in that way. So obviously there's a lot to discuss here. Really looking forward to everybody's comments and we'll talk about this as well as the Matrani reading on Tuesday.